The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, the men and women of the Secret Service. They put their lives on the line regardless of who the president is, what party he's from, and how many enemies he has out there. It's part of the job when you're a POTUS, where you go, they go. And that's where it can get a little tricky, balancing the importance of national security with private family time. They don't always go hand in hand. The Secret Service agents charged with guarding the president taking a bullet for it, if necessary. That's coming up on this episode of American POTUS. I'm Scott Brunn. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. We want to reveal the secrets to the Secret Service in this episode, and there's no one better to help us do that than best-selling author Ronald Kessler. He spent years as an investigative reporter for the Wall Street Journal and Washington Post, winning 18 journalism awards during that time. He's written over 20 books that uncover various aspects of the presidency, the FBI, and the CIA, among others. It's his book, In the President's Secret Service, that we want to uncover today. If you're interested in checking that out, we'll link to the book on our website, AmericanPOTUS.com. Ron, thanks for joining us here on the podcast. Well, it's a pleasure and an honor. Thank you. Ron, I so enjoyed this book and all your work. Let's start very early on, especially after the assassinations of Lincoln and Garfield and McKinley. Why were we as a nation so slow in providing kind of constant professional protection for our presidents? You know, it's sort of, uh, and accepted truth that the government never does anything unless uh, something happens, some crisis happens, and then, of course, uh, they do take action, but often it's too late. And in the case of protecting the president, uh, on the one hand, uh, you had Congress that just didn't want to spend the money. On the other hand, you, typically presidents uh, are very outgoing and they want to uh, connect with crowds and, and uh, they don't want to look as if they have a lot of protection around them for political reasons. And so the combination uh, meant that uh, we were very, very slow to finally provide protection for the president. And just as one example of, of that attitude, uh, it was actually President Lincoln who signed the bill that created the Secret Service, but it was only to go after counterfeiters, not to protect the presidents. Uh, but yet, uh, on that very same day, he was he was assassinated. Uh, he had resisted uh, requests by his aides to have protection, even though the Civil War was going on. Finally, on uh, the day of his assassination, he agreed to it. But there was only one D.C. police officer guarding him, and he went off to have a drink at the local saloon uh, while Lincoln was at Ford's Theater uh, watching the play. And, of course, uh, 
we know what happened next. Yeah. And you would think after that, or at least after Lincoln and then Garfield, that more measures would have been taken. But then we have McKinley. It's not until the early 20th century when the service is given a formal role in protecting the president. Yeah, these uh, uh, protective measures just notched up very, very slowly. And uh, uh, it all began when uh, the... uh, there were these uh, so-called uh, uh, counterfeiters and, and other wild men out in the West uh, that the Secret Service was looking at because they were counterfeiters. But uh, it turned out they also wanted to assassinate the president. So so they started uh, guarding the president uh, at the time, Garfield. And that was that was just one feeble uh, uh, attempt. And, and then Garfield didn't want them... Uh, Guarding them, uh, guarding him uh, in Washington, he thought it didn't look good. Then um, it was not actually until uh, Puerto Rican nationalists tried to assassinate President Truman that Congress formally uh, recognized the Secret Service as uh, a protective body and formally uh, pr- provided a budget. And that's a long time from the Lincoln assassination. That's amazing. Now, you detail that the number of threats coming in against the president on pretty much a daily basis is is very frightening. How does the Secret Service address those overt threats to the president? Of course, in the old days, it was just uh, threats by phone or by letter. Now, of course, it's all on the Internet. Uh, And uh, the Secret Service does investigate each one uh, if it really seems to be a credible threat. Uh, they will uh, look into the background of the individual who made the threat. Uh, they will interview the person, and they'll make a judgment as to whether this person was serious and has the capability, or uh, you know was just drunk at a bar and and blurted out, "I wish I, I could kill the president." In which case, uh, the person probably will not be prosecuted, but it is a federal offense to uh, threaten the president, and and many uh, people. Uh, Many several months, almost every several months, uh, they are they are prosecuted, uh, and but I, unfortunately, uh, or not, depending on how you look at it, uh, only once in the history of the Secret Service was uh, an individual uh, on their threat list before the person made an attempt on the president. Uh, so so uh, even though it's important to investigate mm-hmm, threats mm-hmm. the real threat out there is the unknown the ones you don't where the know. person never never uh, services beforehand yeah you, you tell us in the book as well that there's part of the secret service is the uniformed secret service well how do they provide protection for the white house and and what other facilities do the uniformed secret service agents also protect the uniformed division of the secret service protects the building the white house uh building and grounds it also uh, protects foreign embassies uh, and uh, similar tasks involving uh, foreign visitors. Uh, whereas the agents, who are the ones who wear suits and they have little squiggly in their in their ears, uh, are uh, focused on the president and the first family, and also visiting heads of state. So the difference is, uh, uniform division looks at the building. Uh, agents look at the president, including when he's traveling, 
and uh, they do work together. Now, in addition to attacks with guns or knives, that type of thing, the service also has to be on alert for chemical, biological, even radiological threats. What part of the Secret Service provides that type of protection, and what are some of the tools and techniques that you found they used? Well, for one thing, when you enter the White House, you not only go through metal detectors, but also radiological detectors, and uh, the air in the White House is kept at a high pressure to expel any biological elements that might be introduced. Uh, The uh, FBI is primarily responsible for uncovering uh, plots involving uh, uh, weapons of mass destruction, and, and of course, they work with the Secret Service. If, if a crime occurs, such, such as an assassination, such as uh, when Hinckley uh, attempted to assassinate Reagan, it's the FBI that conducts a criminal investigation. But it's up to the Secret Service to protect the president, of course. And speaking of the Reagan situation, uh, until that attempt, the Secret Service did not uh, screen visitors outside of the White House uh, for for weapons. After that, they started to do that. Uh, And in that case, the Secret Service did want to uh, keep Reagan uh, basically uh, away from crowds when he left the Washington Hilton. But Reagan's staff uh, pressured the Secret Service and said, no, we want to have an opportunity for the press. Uh, And so that's why Hinckley was able to shoot Reagan. Hinckley was allowed within 15 feet of Reagan as he came out of the Washington Hilton by the Secret Service, which never should have uh, acceded to the pressure from the White House staff. That's one of the secrets in my book, The First Family Detail, and also in the President's Secret Service, uh, that on the one hand, it was the White House staff that was most responsible for the, for what happened. And at the same time, the Secret Service uh, caved and also uh, covered up what had really happened. Mm. And I remember that day very well. And of course, we didn't realize that we've come to realize as the years passed that President Reagan was quite close to death that day. Yeah, he uh, the bullet came within an inch of his heart. Uh, and and that's how serious it was. And by the way, the FBI later found that uh, the uh, nuclear football code uh, card with the codes that the president would use to launch a nuclear counterattack had fallen out of his clothing in the uh, emergency room and and was just on the floor. <laughs> uh, and uh, that's that's a whole additional story how uh, oh my nuclear gosh. football is kept and how uh, some some uh, presidents have uh, allowed the card to be lost for example president clinton uh, for for months uh, didn't know where his card was and and the uh, pentagon was afraid to press press him on it uh, and not only that but uh, biden when he was vice president would insist when he went to Wilmington, which was often several times a week, that in the motorcade, the military aide with the nuclear football remain at least a mile behind him, along with the medical doctor, uh, as they were touring around uh, Wilmington. 
uh, he didn't want to look like uh, he was a, a, a regal a potentate. He wanted to have the image of regular Joe, so he didn't want to have a lying motorcade. And during that time, if Obama had been taken out, we would have been totally defenseless because, of course, there would not have been time for the military aid to catch up with Biden, even if there was no traffic. Again, this has never came out before, but it's in my book, uh, The First Family Detail. Well, I hope they have learned from those lessons. We'll, we'll cross our fingers and hope that that isn't happening today. Uh, in, in terms of, so so the, let me go back to the football real quick. The uh, military aid is responsible for that, not the Secret Service. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, uh, yeah. military aid rotates from each of the five services and carries the valise, which contains uh, an array of different communication devices, including satellite phone. Uh, but then it's the uh, card that the president carries with him with codes which identify him when he uh, gets on these phones and talks to the, to the Pentagon to receive the intelligence on what is uh, impending and to order any uh, counterstrike. But all this has to be done within minutes uh, because uh, by that time, uh, Manhattan could have already been wiped out. Uh, the president has no more than 15 minutes to make the decision as to what kind of action to take if they're being attacked. Let's step into one of, um, of the many interesting parts of your book, the, the training of Secret Service agents. Can you tell us a bit about how that's done and whatever concerns you had, if I recall correctly, about how training is, is uh, done today? Uh, the Secret Service has a training center in Lanham, Maryland, and uh, it's about 16 weeks altogether. And uh, it's it's done very well, except that uh, under some Secret Service directors in the past, uh, there's been this dishonesty in general. And as one example, uh, the Secret Service would invite members of Congress to uh, witness uh, various uh, scenarios that are carried out, out at uh, the training center uh, where uh, agents are told there's a bomb or there's a threat and they have to take the correct action. Uh, but when the Congress people came out, the uh, uh, leaders at uh, the training center would let the agents know beforehand what the answer was, where 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 the bomb is, where where the threat is, so, in order to impress the members of Congress and how wonderful they are, and of course that kind of dishonesty in a law enforcement agency leads to all kinds of uh, uh, abuses, and that's what we saw with the Secret Service uh, under some of the the recent directors. Uh, on top of that, the Secret Service had this cultural attitude of, we make do with less. They were proud to not ask for more money or ask for very little money. The whole budget of the Secret Ser Service is just under $3 billion a year, which is uh, basically the cost of a stealth bomber. And yet, how important is the Secret Service? If we have an assassination, it nullifies democracy. And, and that's been one of the problems of the agency in the past. What explains the success, given the challenges they face, what explains the success of the service since JFK in preventing another 
assassination? Has it been training equipment? Have they just had good luck? What what, what explains it? Well, it's it's all of that. Uh, uh, the training improved tremendously after the JFK assassination, and uh, number of agents increased. Uh, the uh, uh, inter interface with the FBI improved. Uh, so there are those improvements. Uh, in order to be an agent, you have to realize that you may have to take a bullet for the president. Of course, the whole idea is not to, but that's always possible. And so the kind of person who uh, decides to apply for a job as an agent really has to be a very dedicated, patriotic individual. And that certainly is, is important. Um, and then beyond that, as you say, it's, it's, it's luck. I mean, it really is amazing given all the threats and given uh, uh, how exposed the president often is that we have not had another successful assassination since the JFK assassination. What went so wrong with JFK and Dallas? What, what steps should they have taken that the service perhaps did not? Actually, this is a, a, another case of, of the president's hubris which I men mentioned before, that they want to uh, appear to be uh, not, not protected by agents, uh, a man of the people, and uh, for political reasons, they don't want agents to be too close to them. And so in that case, the Secret Service did want to have two agents uh, on the running board at the rear of JFK's limousine in Dallas. And JFK said, no, I don't want that. It doesn't look good. And so the agents had to be in the uh, car behind the limousine. Now, the first shot in Dallas was not fatal. And at that point, if the agents had been on the rear running board, they would have jumped on JFK and pushed him to the floor, and he would be alive today. It was the second shot that was fatal, and uh, they simply did not have time to shield him, given his own instruction that he did not want them on the rear running board of his limousine. Since then, you know, we said they've had a, obviously a good record of preventing another such tragedy, but there have been some lapses. What, what are the most troubling recent lapses in POTUS security that you found? Uh, there have been shocking la lapses, uh, going back to the Salahis, who were these uh, party go to goers and were able to go into a state dinner at the White House, even though they were not on the invitation list. Uh, but much more serious, uh, a Mr. Gonzalez was able to scale the fence, which, by the way, uh, you know, was ridiculously uh, not high enough. Now they are installing a higher fence uh, and run through the uh, grounds. One agent, uh, one uniformed officer who's supposed to guard the grounds, was on his personal cell phone having a personal uh, call, was not able to uh, unleash the uh, so-called canine unit, which is their dogs, uh, to go after this guy. And then uh, he actually went into the White House. The White House was not locked, which is absurd, <laughs> yeah. and uh, was able to penetrate almost all the way Jeez. to the other side of the White House. And he yeah. was armed with a knife. Jeez. And then on top of that, the Secret Service director at the time, Julia Pearson, lied to the FBI, uh, lied to the public and said that he was not armed uh, and uh, he never got in the White House. Total lie. Again, can you imagine what the 
message this sends to agents to have their leader lie so blatantly to the public. Uh, when did that it, happen? I'm forgetting when that happened. Uh, you know, it's about four years ago or so. So uh, that that was one of the worst breaches, uh, and and there was uh, there was one after another, uh, and you also had a story that I broke, which was uh, when Obama was going to Colombia, to Cartagena, twelve agents were caught seeing prostitutes, and they were sent back, uh, but that's how how uh, lapse the uh, Secret Service was and the discipline was just shocking. And, uh, and all of this, you know, really uh, playing with our, our lives because uh, if you have a successful assassination, that could be part of a plot to, to mm-hmm. conquer the whole country. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's very shocking. Well, certainly part of the, the job of the agents is to choreograph uh, movements of the president and first lady when they go off site. And I certainly have seen this up close and personally with a former president. There's a lot of planning that goes on. What What are some of the basic things that the Secret Service does when a president goes to dinner or somewhere or, or speaks at a, a conference, something like that? This has changed a lot since Dallas. Uh, in Dallas, there was no advanced preparation. They didn't check out uh, the buildings along the route. They didn't check out uh, the backgrounds of people who might be near the president. Uh, now, all of this is done. Uh, two weeks before the visit, agents will go out and uh, uh, check uh, the motorcade route, uh, check to see who the employees are along the route. For example, for the uh, inauguration, they will do this uh, and go through their backgrounds. And if they find anybody who has a record of uh violent crimes, they will uh, ask that that employee not come into work that day. Uh, The same with uh, waiters, for example, if the president's going to eat in a hotel, they'll they'll do a background check. They'll watch uh, as the food is being prepared, and uh, it'll be served by Navy stewards, not by the regular waiters. The president will stay in a hotel where the Secret Service takes over not only the floor where the president is, but the two floors above and below the president. Uh, And they will uh, check the suite of the president for bugging devices, for uh, explosives. They'll take apart uh, photos. They'll take the TV out and they'll place it with their own TV. When it comes to the uh, uh, talk that the president might give, they... uh, check the site for bombs with, with those canine units, uh, so several of whom I met while doing these books. Uh, and um, uh, they're generally Belgian Malouas, uh, which are cross-trained to, to get explosives and also to take, out, take down people who try to uh, scale the White House fence and, and get inside the grounds. You don't want to mess with them, right? <laughs> the uh, I will tell you just a personal story, even that extends obviously to the vice president. When I was director of the Howard Baker Center in Knoxville, Tennessee, we were doing our groundbreaking and Vice President Cheney came to that. And I was amazed, uh, you know, two weeks out, as you said, I had a very large contingent of people here planning essentially every step. 
And I recall afterwards we had a birthday party for Senator Baker, and that also was choreographed. But in the middle of that, Senator Baker's daughter um, got up and gave him a surprise gift at the head table. And the agents ran to me and said, what is she doing? Uh, because that wasn't on the plan. I said, well, it looks like she's giving a surprise gift to her father. <laughs> but they, they were not pleased with that, which I understand. They had to be very careful, but that wasn't on the uh, the very, very choreographed plan of the day. That's a great story. Yeah. And another great story, uh, speaking of uh, advanced work, uh, when George H.W. Bush was campaigning for re-election, he was going to go out to Enid, Oklahoma, to give a speech. And the Secret Service checked with local law enforcement beforehand for any threats. And they said, you know, there's this psychic in town who's been incredibly uh, reliable about possible threats and actually has taken us to the gravesites of murder victims. Unbelievable. And uh, she had a, uh, a vision that... Uh, Bush was going to be assassinated when it comes to Enid. Uh, and the agents, you know, were embarrassed to take this seriously, but they did. They went and interviewed her and they said, can you show us uh, where the limousines are going to be, or the planes? And she did. She knew uh, at the Air Force Base where uh, the limousine was in a hangar and, and where the backup plane was. was. Uh, and she said that when... Uh, Bush comes out of Air Force One, she sees him wearing a jacket and uh, a sports shirt. And they thought, oh, that's crazy. He, he is always dressed in a suit. Uh, but they did let headquarters know about all this. And the next morning when he came out of Air Force One, lo and behold, he was wearing a sport shirt and hmm. a uh, uh, sport jacket. Uh, wow. So they changed the motorcade routes so it would not go under any overpasses, which is where she said this assassination would take place. And of course, he was safe. He was never told about it, but he has read about it in my book, In the President's Secret Service. It's a great story. So some of the stories, though, in your book are not very flattering to certain presidents. For sure, the stories coming out of the Secret Service, especially with JFK and LBJ, I found. Uh, Can you tell us what what story of presidential misbehavior that you learned either most concerned or surprised you? You know, agents are like uh, human surveillance cameras. They see everything that goes on behind the scenes. <laughs> right. And they uh, have told me what the presidents and first family members are, are really like. And uh, as you say, uh, Johnson was the most uh, egregious. Uh, he, he was, uh, as one agent said, he was essentially mentally ill you know he should have been in a mental hospital uh, except that he was president he would he would uh s- sit on a toilet and defecate in front of friends uh, in front of aides as they were briefing him he would uh urinate uh in front of female reporters at his ranch as he was giving a press conference uh he he was in fact drunk part of the time uh, instead of a binge drinker and and you know would would uh, be really out of it when he was drinking. Generally, uh, the most uh, dis- distasteful kind of person you can imagine. And and these things do, you know, come out in in decisions and policies. I think I think his pursuit of the Vietnam War when when there was absolutely no reason to be there in the first place, uh, and the CIA was telling him that 
uh, is just an example of you know how unbalanced he was. On the other side, uh, Obama and Michelle uh, were and still are. They're still protected by the Secret Service. Uh, perfectly normal, gracious people. They were they would uh, give uh, food to uh, agents. They were uh, respectful. Uh, Trump is the same. I asked Trump one time, how do you like being protected by the Secret Service? And he said, it's great. You know, I'll be playing golf and there'll be 20 agents around him. Of course, he was exaggerating as he always does. Uh, and and uh, if I miss a shot, they won't see it because they're all looking around in different directions. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> so you you mentioned other presidents in there as well, some that were liked. I think both of the uh, presidents Bush were liked. Uh, Carter was was a little less easy to get along with. Uh, what what about those presidents? Either led the Secret Service to say they were among their favorites or among their least favorites. Well, Carter uh, would. Not act would not talk to the Secret Service. You know, I, I interviewed uh, an agent who was his driver for seven months, and he said during that whole time he never made any comments or conversations. Uh, conversation. Uh, the only time would be any uh, discussion of of directions. Uh, in addition, Carter said he doesn't want agents to say hello to him in the morning on the way to the Oval Office. It was just apparently too much bother to say hello back. Uh, and yet he created this image of a jolly peanut farmer and man of the people. And uh, of course, that's one way that he got elected. Uh, and um, uh, the most egregious thing in his case was uh, just like uh, Clinton, he didn't want to have a nuclear football uh, around or just like Biden. And uh, when he would go to planes, uh, his hometown, he would say that the military aid with the nuclear football has to stay in a motel in Americas, which was 17 miles away. So oh again, gosh. we were totally defense, defenseless in the event of an attack hmm. when when Jimmy Carter was was uh, in planes. And of course, this was all kept secret. Mm -hmm. And also Carter would make the show of carrying his own luggage when he traveled but actually it was empty and he would give it to aides to carry as soon as the cameras were gone. This was part of his little <laughs> shtick. Yeah. On the other hand, I think Reagan was uh, pretty beloved by the service. Yeah. Reagan was, was uh, very uh, friendly with the agent, with the agents. One time he, he came out of his uh, Los Angeles home uh, and he was wearing a pistol and an agent said, what's that for? And he said, well, just in case you guys need need help. Uh, <laughs> one time, um, uh, he and Nancy were at the ranch, and uh, when they were at the ranch, they would go horseback riding, which he enjoyed. She did not enjoy as much. Uh, and so he was about to start this ride and, and call for her to come out of the, of the ranch house and she wasn't coming out. And he went in and saw that she was on the phone chatting with her friend uh, from Los Angeles. And he became enraged and took the phone and and, and uh, ripped it out of the wall and, and threw it on the floor. Wow. So he had a temper. Yeah. You know, we all have little uh, fits like that, but mm. they're not quite 
quite that bad. <laughs> right. uh, and by the way, Reagan was so careful about having the nuclear football with him that even when he was on his horseback rides, uh, he would have the agent, the uh, military aide with the nuclear football ride just behind him on another horse. Very smart. Now, let's step forward in time. The horrible day of September 11th. How has the Secret Service changed since 9/11? You know, it hasn't changed that much. I mean, after after 9/11 is when some of these really egregious uh, efforts by uh, intruders uh, occurred, and uh, at the same time, they they have, for example, uh, come up with ways to detect uh, drones and and shoot them down or, or disable them electronically. That's very important. For, for example, when during the inauguration, you know, you could have a drone fly over Pennsylvania Avenue and, and uh, uh, with, with uh, some kind of weapon. Uh, but Secret Service has worked with the Pentagon and Scandia Labs to try to avoid that, that threat. Mm, so that's, that's a big improvement. Yeah. So moving forward, what, what are the main management issues you, you believe they need to address now to make sure they can do their job into the future? I think they still need to get rid of this cultural attitude of we may do with bet, with less, this proud attitude. You know, we're not going to ask for more money. Uh, they need to ask for more money. They need yeah. to have the most up-to-date sensors for detecting uh, intrusions at the White House, for example. They need more agents. Uh, they need much more uh, protection uh, in motorcades, uh, much more, you know, given the threats. You could have 30 terrorists, you know, surrounding the White House, uh, all armed. And uh, where would the Secret Service be? They, they do have uh, missiles at the building across the street. Uh, they have agents on, on the roof of the White House. Uh, at the same time, uh, if, if, if you just consider that the White House is right in the middle of Washington uh, and uh, could be uh, assaulted from any direction, which, in fact, uh, almost happened uh, when you had the big uh, protest in Washington. Uh, that's, that's a scary situation. Yeah, yeah. As you say, they certainly need those resources. Great respect for their mission and those who do it. We just need to make sure they have the tools, the resources they need to be, to be successful for all of our sake. You got it. You know, it seems a lot of people just don't understand danger and, and, uh, and our willingness to take a chance with, with our national security. And uh, that's that's a big problem. I will say uh, I was at one point director of the George W. Bush Library, and we dedicated that. We had all the presidents there that day and amazing security for many weeks out. And my family would ask, you know, back in Kentucky, they would say, do you, do you feel safe there that day? I said, I'm pretty sure this is the safest spot on planet Earth today <laughs> because we had every imaginable um, agency there, including the Secret Service, providing amazing protection for all of us. So um, that was uh, quite a day. So, Ron, let's get into the personal side of POTUS protection a bit more. In just about every episode of this podcast where we feature a POTUS prior to Secret Service codenames being used, I'll ask our guest expert what they think that president's name would have been, and there have been some good ones. So can you tell us why these Secret Service codenames were put into use and how the names are decided? The codenames uh, were put into use 
back when uh, we didn't have uh, the technology that we have today. Uh, so the radio transmissions of the agents were not encrypted. And uh, therefore, to disguise uh, the subject of a conversation, they would use these code names. Uh, today, the transmissions are encrypted, but Secret Service continues to use code names. One reason is that uh, when agents are in a crowd and they're talking about the president, they don't want people to overhear the subject of the conversation, and so they will they will use uh, the code name of, of the president or the, or the uh, the first lady. Uh, and a second reason is to avoid any confusion when uh, referring to, uh, you know, let's say Clinton versus Hillary versus uh, other family members, that there could be some misunderstanding about the name that is being used. And uh, typically, uh, the Secret Service assigns the code names just based on random words generated by a computer. The first letter of each uh, family is always the same. So uh, you had, um, let's see, now I've forgotten them all, but but uh, you had uh, Evergreen was was uh, was Hillary, and uh, Clinton was Eagle, and and they still are. They're still protected. That's that's the way the code names work. But uh, recently, uh, people have chosen to. Uh, select their own code name, and uh, Trump selected mogul, and uh, <laughs> Melania selected muse, uh, mm-hmm. and so now very often the code name is selected by the protectee. Okay, I'm going to have to come up with one for myself. Uh, the last one say Scott. That's the next yeah. American POTUS okay. project. Yes. I'll get back to everybody on that. <laughs> <All right. laughs> so through the years, there have been many first children and first teenagers to watch over while their dad was in office. How is this done? Are the agents actually in the classrooms with them and on dates with the kids? They are. Um, there are 300 uh, agents assigned to the presidential detail, and that includes the first family as well as uh, the vice president. And uh, the agents assigned to uh, the children uh, are, of course, not as numerous as on the president, but you know, typically um, a, first fam- uh, a child of, of a president will have at least four agents assigned to that individual, even, even to uh, grandkids and, and even when they're, when they're babies. And, and it's all important because what what if uh, let's say a terrorist group uh, takes uh, the child of the president and tries to uh, negotiate some some uh, uh, some kind of extortion deal? So uh, that is uh, part of the duties. When the when the child goes to school, the agents will check out the the building uh, beforehand uh, and they may not actually be in the classroom, but they'll be just outside the classroom and also at the entrances to the school. That's uh, what happened. Uh, that's what happens when, when a child is in school. Uh, when a child is uh, uh, having a birthday party at someone's home, because uh, the people are all known to to the uh, family, 
typically they won't they won't uh, uh, be inside the the house where the party is held, but they'll be outside in in their SUVs. Um, so uh, there's uh, lesser protection, of course, but but still they are protected. One of the uh, mischievous uh, first children, Amy Carter, uh, President Carter's uh, daughter, uh, one time caught a uh, Secret Service agent napping under a tree near her school, and she t- tied uh, his shoelaces together. Uh, <laughs> and uh, she was very difficult. She would, uh, in the plane, she would purposely take saltines and, cr- and crumble them on the floor just to watch the Air Force One stewards pick them up. Oh, she geez. thought that was really funny. But the, the, the worst protectee of all is Hillary Clinton, and that continues because she's still protected. Uh, she is so nasty to agents that being assigned to her detail is considered a form of punishment, the worst assignment in the Secret Service. Every day she will come up with some way to, to unleash her fury at an agent over nothing, you know, whether it's a bump in the road or, or maybe the agent made a uh, uh, a mistaken turn, or she'll come up with nothing. And when she was in the White House, she would actually tell agents she did not want to see them. So when she would walk down a, a, a corridor or a hall in the White House, they would literally try to hide. They would go behind curtains or they would uh, duck into a nearby office so that she wouldn't see them. She also didn't like to see military or police uh, at her events. Uh, that was, uh, and still is, her her hatred of of anybody uh representing our our security that's too bad just trying to do their job right we talked about this a little bit before with the horseback riding and the nuclear football but a lot of presidents have personal hobbies that they bring with them to the white house like jogging or horseback riding or chopping wood or whatever since the agents have to be with them at all times do they train to be proficient in these hobbies as well yes uh they will select uh an agent who is already a good skier, for example, to accompany uh, President Ford as he would uh, ski down uh, a slope, uh, or they would train them if necessary, for example, to uh, to be good uh, horse horsemen, uh, and uh, that was necessary, you know, in the case of Reagan, obviously. Uh, so it's, it's a combination of whether uh, the individual already is. Uh, uh, well-versed in, in the uh, hobby or pursuit or whether they need to train somebody. But in, in every case, they do uh, provide agents who are able to, you know, for example, keep up with the president when he's jogging. I've heard that's a challenge with, with George W. Bush, right? Wasn't, isn't he a big mountain biker? Like he, he tries to, he goes a little fast? Yeah, in some cases, George W. Bush would outrun agents. Uh, and, uh, but, but that didn't happen too often. Trying to remember, he had the a club. What was the name of the club at the ranch? When if they would jog and on a day when it was over a hundred degrees, maybe and and he would give them all a t shirt if they were able to to do that. I, I don't remember <laughs> what that. I'll find out and tell us on a, tell everyone on a future episode of American okay. Post the name of that club. Finally, Ron, my last question. There have been a lot of action-packed Secret Service movies through the years, like Angel Has Fallen, White House Down, Parkland, In the Line of Fire, Guarding Test. The the list goes on and on. So what is your favorite Secret Service movie? And 
which is the most accurate? In the line of fire starring Clint Eastwood. It's, yeah. it's accurate. It's gripping. Uh, it uh, portrays the bravery of the agents. Uh, and uh, I think uh, that is definitely worth watching. When you were talking about Hillary Clinton, I was I was thinking about guarding Tess. <laughs> Remember how she was so difficult to the yeah. agents in the first part of the movie? Yeah, you got uh, it. Yeah. yeah, it's amazing. Ron, this has been a really fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for joining us on American POTUS. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the American POTUS podcast. We'd like to thank author Ronald Kessler for joining us on this episode about the Secret Service. More information on his book, In the President's Secret Service, can be found on AmericanPOTUS.com. If you have questions on this episode or ideas for future topics, you can easily send us a note on AmericanPOTUS.com, Facebook, or Twitter. We would also appreciate you taking the time to provide a positive rating and review on the player you're listening to right now. And if you're new to American POTUS, please check out the 50-plus episodes that are available on the playlist, covering the presidents and the presidency from the very beginning. Graphic design for American POTUS is by the Thought Bureau, an original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. Finally, it's our presidential last word from Barack Obama. Quote, Now sometimes I'm the first one to admit that it chafes a little bit being inside this bubble. It's the hardest adjustment of being president, not being able to just take a walk.